0: Hi, true crime fans you're tuning into coffee murder and mystery a true crime podcast where we discuss murder mystery and the supernatural don't forget to hit subscribe hey true crime friends i'm your host melissa and Jeff will be back next week. He just had some car issues and whatnot to deal with this week. Today we're bringing you two different stories, both about missing persons. First is a story of how Keith Reinhardt went missing, and after that, stay tuned for the disappearance of the Satter children. <sighs> Today we're gonna to talk about the disappearance of Keith Reinhardt. Keith's story starts in Chicago, where he was a sports writer with a loving wife and children. Keith had a friend who lived in Silver Plume, Colorado. Keith decided he wanted to look for a simpler life, and he had an interest in panning for gold, so he thought that he would give Silver Plume a try. Packing up his things, he said a temporary goodbye to his wife and children, and took a 90-day sabbatical from work. Keith headed out to Silver Plume, Colorado, to write a novel and see if it was somewhere he may want to relocate his family to. I wanted to tell you a bit about life in Silver Plume, Colorado, so that you could understand the appeal and the simpler life there. Silver Plume is an old mining town. It's actually commonly referred to as a mining camp. It's known as a living ghost town with a population of under 200. Pictures of Silver Plume, which are on our website at mystery.podbeam.com show a small rural town in the mountains. It's exactly what you would think of when you think of an old ghost town, except not quite as run down. The landscape is exactly what you would picture for rural Colorado. Even though this is a small rural spot, it's only an hour from Denver. There are many local legends in the town. It's said that a miner took some of the town's ore. To Louis Dupay, who was a French immigrant who opened the Hotel de Paris in Silver Plume. The miner asked Louis, What should we name this camp? And it was said that Louis wrote a poem about the town right there on the spot. Knights today are miners bold who delve in deep mines' gloom to honor men who dig for gold, for ladies whom their arms enfold. We'll name the town Silver Plume. It is also said that Clifford Griffin was an Englishman who came to Silver Plume in the late 1860s and discovered the first vein of ore running through the mountain. Clifford had come to Silver Plume to start a new life after finding his fiancé had perished the day before they were to be married. Clifford Griffin soon became the richest man in the area. But Clifford could not forget his would-be wife, and his loneliness consumed him. It is said that he would sit by the entrance to the mine, where he had made his cabin, and after a hard day's work he would play his violin for the miners, looking for companionship in the people around him. It is said that when he was finished playing, you could hear the applause echoing off the canyon walls. When a holiday approached, Clifford was generous to the men, wanting them and their families to thrive. But Clifford would say it pained him to watch the men spending time with their wives while Clifford was alone, unable to forget what would have been. Eventually, Clifford's loneliness was too much for him to bear. He constructed a grave by the entrance to the mine, his favorite spot, and shot himself dead so that he would fall into it. When the gunshot rang out through the canyon, everyone ran to find Clifford Griffin dead in his grave. He left a note asking them to keep his body in the stone grave there, in the only spot he had found happiness since his would-be wife's untimely death. The townspeople built a memorial to Clifford Griffin atop his grave. I'll link a picture to that on our page as well and now the town of Silverplume is part of the Georgetown Silverplume Historic District. Keith took up residence in Silverplume in an old abandoned church that had a shop directly next door. He set up an antique shop with photos and things to sell while he was living in the church. His goal while he was at the temporary residence was to write a novel. When Keith found out about the disappearance of Tom Young a year earlier, on September 7, 1987, he decided to change the course of his novel and base it on the disappearance of Tom Young with Guy Gypsum as the main character based upon Tom Young. Tom was the previous tenant at the same shop that Keith was renting. He told friends he was going on vacation and was never seen alive again. Keith's antique store had previously been Tom Young's bookstore. It was the old Knights of Pythias building directly next to the old Catholic church that Keith was currently residing in. So just a little recap, because I think this is a little bit confusing. Keith has an antique store in the old Knights of Pythias building, and that is where Tom's bookstore was a year before, and Tom went missing on September 7th. And Keith was then the next tenant in this store. So I wanted to give you a little background on the Knights of Pythias. Justice H. Rathbone founded the Knights of Pythias in 1889 in Lima, Ohio. He was a government clerk in the Treasury Department of the U.S. government. He based the order on the mythological friendship of Damon and Pythias. In their story, Damon and Pythias belonged to a brotherhood. Characteristics of this brotherhood included strict morality, absolute truthfulness, and honor. Damon opposed the rule of the king, and long story short, he was condemned to execution. Because of their noble friendship, each man was willing to die for the other. It's a beautiful story that is referenced in many literary works. It does seem honorable, but like any secret society full of men, people do have their conspiracy theories. Ten months after his disappearance, Tom's skeletal remains were located an hour out of Silver Plume. It was July thirty-first, 1988. His dog was beside him with a single gunshot to the head. Keith's skeleton was propped against a tree with a single gunshot to his head as well. The gun that was found at the scene did match one that was purchased by Tom four days before his disappearance. The death was ruled a suicide. Seven days later, Keith Reinhart set out to hike to the top of Pendleton Mountain. He closed up his shop for the day and told everyone where he would be going. It was about 5 p.m. This was a hike that he had attempted before but could not complete because of the rough terrain. There is no defined path up the mountain and it is known to have loose, slippery, jagged rocks and there are steep drops. If Keith would have completed the hike he should have been back by 10 p.m. But everyone in the area knew that this was not the wisest thing to do at that time of day. This hike would not be wise in the dark. Witnesses who saw Keith walking toward the mountain said he did not have the proper clothing or shoes and he was not carrying a backpack. He set off on this journey with one can of pop. The next day when Keith did not return there was a massive search effort. People took to the ground and air to search for Keith. There were even bloodhounds on the team. But there was no trace of Keith, not a single clue. And on 8 after there were 10,000 man-hours put into the search, they called it quits. A small plane that was included in the search had made an error and succumbed to the treacherous terrain. In the crash, the pilot died, but the passenger was able to be rescued by helicopter. With no clues, they called off the search as they didn't want any more fatalities on the mountain. The terrain was so rough that the paws of the search dogs had to be bandaged for protection. Police described the mountain as very physical with no paths, loose rock, and heavy vegetation. The only clue that was left behind was on Keith's computer. If you recall, Keith was writing a novel about Tom Young's disappearance with the main fictional character being Guy Gypsum. The clue that was left behind on Keith's computer was as follows. Guy Gypsum changed into some hiking boots and donned a heavy flannel shirt. He understood it all now and his motivation. Guy closed the door and walked off toward the lush, shadowless Colorado forests above. Many people believe that Keith and Tom both committed suicide. Some believe that they both found out something they shouldn't have at the storefront that they were renting and they were murdered for it. Others believe that amidst Keith's midlife crisis, he left his life behind to start anew. And today he is in his 80s, somewhere warm, living up his last days. Keith's son, Kai Reinhardt visited Silver Plume himself and took the hike up to the top of the mountain as his father was trying to do. He believes his father was murdered. I posted the pic of Keith on the web page if you're interested. It is a really cool picture and you can see behind him and just how dangerous the terrain could be, especially in the dark. There's also a travel channel series called Lost in the Wild that did an episode on Keith's story if you're interested in learning more. There's a documentary in the works called The Dark Side of the Mountain. The name is a reference from Keith's novel. You can leave comments about the case on thedarkside.com our second case tonight goes back more than seven decades to George and Jenny Sodder. they lived in the small town of Fayetteville West Virginia with their nine children the Soder family had ten children but the oldest was off to war Fayetteville is a small town with one main street running 100 yards it was Christmas Eve 1945 when George and Jenny Satter were in bed and believed their children to be in bed as well. But at 1 a.m. they awoke to find a fire. George, Jenny, and four of the children were able to escape, but the five children that were sleeping in the loft did not make it out of the fire. Father George tried to re-enter the house to save his children, but the smoke was too thick. Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louis, nine, jenny eight and betty five were still in the house in a bedroom on the other side of a staircase that was no longer accessible as it was engulfed in flames but luckily george kept a ladder propped up against the house but when george tried to get this ladder to get his kids to safety the ladder was missing george trying to come up with any idea to save his five children ran to one of his coal trucks. He would drive a truck up to the window and try to climb onto it and get to the upstairs window. Both trucks, which had started the day before, were now out of service. George was unable to drive either truck up to the window. 17-year-old Marion was on it. She had run up to a neighbor's house and was calling the fire department. But Marion was unable to make this call because the operator wasn't picking up. Someone tried to call the fire department from a nearby tavern as well. The blaze was big enough now for people in the neighborhood to notice, but the operator wouldn't pick up for them either. Apparently, the fire chief was unable to drive the fire truck and staff was low due to the holiday. And the fire truck did not arrive until 8 a.m. on Christmas Day the fire truck was no longer needed the fire had burned for just over an hour and that completely destroyed the house but the investigation did start at that time it was determined that the children had burned in the fire and that the fire was caused from faulty wiring George and Jenny could not agree with this They had no electric problems before the fire, and a search of the rubble did not produce any bones. They couldn't find any evidence that their children actually perished in the house fire. And at first thought, you may think that because the fire burned itself out, that the bones burnt too, and that there was just nothing left. But I actually looked into this, and a house fire is generally 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit, a crematorium burns at 1800 degrees even then bone fragments must be collected and put into an electrical processor and this is what Jenny was advised by the local crematorium that at a much higher heat than a house fire gives off a body must be burned for two hours and this fire only lasted an hour there should have been full skeletal remains of all of her children but then Jenny thinking back to before the fire remembered some unusual things from the night that she didn't think anything of at the time when everyone went to bed that evening the five missing children had asked to stay up the parents told them that they could but they had to do some chores and make sure to turn out the lights close the curtains lock the doors and go to bed Well, sometime during the night, the phone rang and Jenny got up to answer it. It was a woman, but Jenny could hear many people in the room with the woman. The woman asked for someone that Jenny did not know. Jenny simply advised her that she had the wrong number. But at this time, Jenny noticed that the kids had not done what she instructed. The lights were on and the door unlocked. Jenny closed up the house for the night and went back to bed. A while later, Jenny heard a noise. Like something had hit the roof. This was a tin roof. She woke her husband George and they discovered the house was on fire. And what about George's trucks? Why wouldn't they start that night? One truck is understandable, but two? And what about the missing ladder? I mean, that's where they kept it, right? But it was just gone. A bus driver stated that he had seen fireballs hitting the roof of the solder home. A phone repairman told the solders that their phone line had been cut, not burnt, and it was 14 feet in the air. The missing ladder was found later at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away. A woman from the area claimed that she had seen the five children drive by in a car She was watching the fire rage from her front yard. A woman working at a diner off the interstate said that she served breakfast to five children on Christmas morning. This diner was 50 miles away. After a period of time with no answers, the family erected a billboard featuring all five of the children. They offered a $5,000 reward. The police were able to find the woman that called the Sotter house that night, and she confirmed that it was simply the wrong number. This means the phone lines were cut between that call and the fire. In 1967, a woman from Houston had written the family. She claimed that a man in his 30s had gotten drunk and told her that he was actually Lewis Sotter she believed Lewis and his brother Maurice were living in Texas father George went there as he often followed up on leads and found the boys but they denied that they were the Satter brothers it was said that this haunted George until he died in 1968 an envelope came in the mail it had no return address but simply a postmark from a city in Kentucky it contained a picture of a man and on the back it read, "Louis Sodder, I love brother Frankie. But police tried to convince the Sodder family it was a hoax. But the Sodders looked at the picture and they felt that this could really be their son. They hired a private detective to go out to Kentucky and check this out. But they never heard from the private detective again. They were unable to locate him. George and Jenny never stopped looking for their five children. George passed in 1969. Jenny passed in 1989. The billboard died with her. Many people believe the children died in the fire that night. Many others believe that the children were taken. But one thing is for certain the Sauter family has passed this task on to their children and their grandchildren. Asking them to continue to bring attention to this case and never stop looking. That's all we have for today's episode. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter at underscore coffee murder. You can find us on Instagram at coffee cigarettes and murder. You can email our Gmail at coffee cigarettes and murder at gmail.com. And now we have a Facebook page. Just look up coffee murder and mystery. Make sure you follow us and you'll get information about new episodes. Also, don't forget to subscribe. We're a new podcast, still building our fan base, so it really, really means a lot to us if you subscribe. And if you would give us a five-star rating, we would be eternally grateful. So remember, evil people are everywhere. Bye! Thanks for tuning in to Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. A true crime.